Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 26. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 26. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. We're here to discuss another chapter of Not a Fan and Then Some. Today finds us in chapter 11 titled, Take Up Your Cross Daily and Everyday Death. And I just to kind of give a summary of where this has kind of been headed, uh, chapter 10 was called Deny a Total Surrender. Uh, chapter 9 was Come After Me, A Passionate Pursuit. Uh, I guess the best way I can summarize this is the, uh, the author, Kyle Edelman, has kind of been turning up the fire in each chapter. Uh, last chapter was about what it means to deny and surrender. Um, surprisingly, we did not really agree with that. Uh, this chapter, he kind of puts the screws in a little tighter with uh, kind of following the same theme of denial, but now talking about uh, denying equals suffering, suffering being related to the cross, uh, dying, uh, what the cross is about. And then he gets into some pretty horrendous proof text in my opinion and that's where I'd kind of like to go today um, that's a few pages into the chapter so were there any things that caught your eye that you wanted to touch on before we get there I mean there were a number of uh, a number of these pieces I think I think a couple things would be important before, well we can go there but there are a couple of other things that I want to bring out in, in addition because he talks a lot about the cross and what does the cross mean and, and, you know, I think oftentimes we, um, <clears throat> we've been in the situation where we've had a hard time giving Kyle points. So I would want to give him points where I could. But let's start and, there. Let's start positive and then go negative. <laughs> okay. I won't take much time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry about that. But I, I really liked when he's talking about the cross. And... Um, he begins the chapter talking about the, the, the relationship, say, between a church and a business. And with a business, you want to have a good slogan. You want to have a good uh, uh, symbol. And um, with the church, he, he, the symbol that he has, obviously, is the cross. And he's looking at, you know, what does the cross mean and, and, and what is the symbol? Uh, pardon me, what is the slogan? And, um, you know, he cites, in terms of the slogan, he cites Bonhoeffer. And on the top of page 159, as Bonhoeffer puts it, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Um, so I, I want to leave the, the come and die part but for now. But the cross, he makes a couple of references to the cross on page 159 uh, through to page 161. And the best one I thought, I thought, I thought one of the important points where he's really coming close to something that I think is quite crucial and helps us understanding to understand this whole notion of suffering more clearly is the idea that the cross on page uh, last paragraph of page 159, the cross was a symbol of humiliation. And I think you and I may have talked previously about this idea that the um, society in antiquity, 
in first century Palestine and throughout the first century world was largely an honor and shame based society. What that means is um, people, the equivalent of what we use today is a credit card or uh, uh, however we make our purchases, our ability to interact, to trade, to be recognized as reputable, um, both in terms of just, uh, you know, social value and standing, but also in terms of um, our economic uh, position, uh, like how how reputable we're seen to be and, and how trustworthy we are, whether we're worth, you know, people doing stuff on credit or bartering with us, is dependent upon our honor in our society. And so honor was a call, a, a, like a like a thing you possessed, and it was in limited amounts. There was not an endless supply of honor. Not everybody could be honored. And there are lots of, when you're, talk, when you're looking at, at Jesus in the Gospels, and you see his interactions with the, the Pharisees, when we look at this and understand it from an honor and shame-based perspective, these were challenges uh, that, that you know, one author talks about as challenge and riposte, or basically someone is, uh, you know, Jesus is putting himself in a position that is above himself. He's putting himself in the position of teacher, and he's being challenged. And if he can't maintain his honor as a teacher, if he cannot substantiate this through, uh, uh, through proving that he is worthy of his role, he loses face. So losing honor is like losing, we could say it's losing face, and it's equated to ultimately being, being shamed in the society and being um, shown to be of a lower position. And so when he's talking about the cross as humiliation, this is really, really important. And I think this is, this is primary. This is one of the primary things that's taking place. And in this whole discussion of suffering, the focal point is Jesus on the cross. And that makes sense. But it also and particularly makes sense in light of the fact that this society, um, I mean, Roman crucifixion is indeed that, right? It's a, it's a it's a it's a nasty way to die. It's it's certainly, but it it's it's as he says, it's it's expensive. Crucifixion at the bottom of one fifty nine. Crucifixion on the other hand required four soldiers and a centurion to oversee. It's much more expensive. So why why crucify? They did it when they wanted to publicly humiliate the person being being crucified. And indeed, that that's a huge part of it. And um, the the one of the the, the, the contrast that we do not see, it passes our eyes. We do not perceive it, and we need to. We need to regain first century eyes when we read this, is that for all intents and purposes, Jesus was utterly diminished. He was utterly abased. He lost everything. And, you know, in the community, that, and as particularly in, with with with. I think some of the pharisaical approach, you know, this, uh, I pray openly on street corners, right? Versus, you know, praying quietly because I'm, I'm of low worth, you know, praying on my own, not because I'm a sinner. But particularly in this context, this was a dismissal and a denigration and a denial of everything Jesus had done. But wouldn't that, doesn't that then support uh, Kyle's assertion earlier that we disagreed with that it's all about becoming nothing well, well, to the point of not exist. Well, I guess he pushes it farther than we agreed with, which was to the point of not even existing. 
Jesus still exists. He's just put himself in the position of being nothing. Right, but 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 remember, Jesus was resurrected. Jesus raised. Now, and this, when Paul meets Jesus on the road to, Damas- road to Damascus, Paul understands that this is the ultimate and irrefutable sign of, of a couple of things. One, the exile is over. The, is- the Jewish people are no longer in a state of exile. They're in a state of being back in right relationship with God. Number two, because the resurrection itself is the ultimate and first sign of that. Number three, the only way that this can happen is with the coming of the Messiah. Number four, Jesus is this Messiah. The act of being totally abased and then in in the culture. So in the cultural setting, I totally agree with Kyle. This is the ultimate form of humiliation. There's a lot of effort being put into this to not only kill this person, it's like a what they did with pirates, you know, in the whatever, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. They, they, they would hang their body, they would kill them, and then they would hang their bodies in iron cages for the birds to pick the bones off of. I mean, it was not only a humiliation, but a warning sign, but it was certainly humiliating, right? And you didn't need to do that. It was a whole lot of extra work and time. But you did it um, for those two reasons. But what we're seeing here through this seeming humiliation, which is in fact given the ultimate validation, is that God is completely obliterating this idea of honor and shame. Jesus is turning this on its head. Who are my brothers and sisters? Who is my mother? They're the ones who hear the word of God and do it. Totally turning things on their heads. And this idea of suffering it only makes sense in terms of context of Jesus, on the one hand, acting in a way that seemed to be completely at odds with what God should be doing. God should be coming, and as the people had anticipated, bringing political deliverance. The people, as Kyle pointed out earlier, he said that they were only interested in food, and this is when we're talking about the, the miracles of feeding the many with the five loaves and the two bread. The five loaves and the loaves and the fishes, whichever quantity they were. And instead, no, they were looking for, they had a political understanding, a here and now political understanding of what Jesus should be doing. And Jesus said, I am, I am far more than that. You know, they saw him as a prophet. He's far more than that. He's at least that, but he's more than that. And so the idea of suffering is that it is packed within this context of God reversing situations, of God taking things that the Jewish people had said, this is the way it is and the way it should be, and God saying, no, 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 you've got that wrong. So if, if I can put it in a phrase, um, it's this contrast between glory and suffering and God's glory and, and, and Jesus' suffering. And I'm going to read from a, a, a book by N.T. Wright called The Climax of the Covenant, and I'm on page 190. Uh, he says, in other words, the glory which is seen as in a mirror in Paul's ministry, is the glory which shines through suffering. The glory consists in the fact that Paul does not despair in his sufferings, is not abandoned, although persecuted, is not destroyed, even when struck down. And it's this pattern, it's this pattern which is 
entirely important. And we need to bear in mind that the suffering, I mean, I'm sure that people in the first century are suffering the way we now would understand suffering. I'm sure that's part of it. But we also have to understand, like when Kyle uses, in other words, um, on one page 161, this verse in, in Luke, Luke 6.22, blessed are you, I'm reading from the top of page 161, blessed are you when uh, men hate you, or people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you. Your name is evil because of the Son of Man. And this is, this is, this is not about uh, suffering as, uh, you know, you have to put up with all these bad things. It's about within this context, you are choosing options which don't follow the game of honor and shame. You are literally choosing options which are shameful. And Jesus is saying, just as I did, just as I suffered through this, and clearly, you know, Jesus suffered more than just losing face. You know, the, the cross is not about just losing face. It's, it's about literally being physically beaten. It's about, um, you know, being physically daunted and, uh, you know, still going through with everything. Um, but I think we really have to be careful. This whole idea that, you know, the more you suffer and the more you, well, no, you're putting it in the context of, um, you have to put it back into the context in which the text is written. Well, and that's, I think, the, 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 what, as you're talking, that there's this subtle shift that I feel like he makes that just, uh, I'm just really questioning. So on 160 towards the bottom, he says, you can't carry a cross without suffering. A little bit before that, he talks about the cross was a symbol of suffering. Mm-hmm. And his tie-in here, because the passage he's been beating to death is Luke 9.23, Mm-hmm. That you must deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me daily. I, part of me feels like he's kind of pulling a fast one here. He's talked about the cross and what a symbol of humiliation, kind of like you've been saying. Um, then he talks about how the cross is a symbol of suffering. And then I, this is where I feel like this thing really goes off the tracks. It, it's like he's trying to make this link to Jesus' crucifixion and suffering, and so, therefore, we must suffer in the same way. Is is that what he's? Is that what Kyle's saying? That's what I pick it up as. Okay, which yep. seems to me to be kind of a strange. I don't know that it's strange. I, I think part of the reason this whole section jumped out at me is it's it's. I don't think it's Kyle's unique message. I think it's a very common message and one that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's. I don't know what's more problematic to me, the the message that just completely, that doesn't completely make sense to me or how bad the proof texting is on 161. <laughs> Cause, and, and that's yeah. kind of where I wanted to go. So before we go there, maybe where there, did you want to round out more of your thoughts on the cross and that context? I think if we take suffering out of context, we've, we've, we've lost it. So I'm putting it back into the context of the first century. But I'm also saying that that huge contrast between Jesus' Jesus's suffering and the humiliation and Jesus' resurrection and the vindication. So I would come back. Let me just read two more sentences out of N.T. Wright's Climax of the Covenant on page 191. Well, a few more than that. Yeah, the glory of God is seen precisely in the paradoxical, paradoxical pattern of Christ. That is the pattern of suffering and vindication. So when Paul's talking about his suffering, he's doing two things. On the one hand, he's defending his boldness, the straightforward proclamation of the truth, which characterizes his ministry. 
On the other hand, and this is where it really impacts us here, he is demonstrating that suffering and persecution do not pose question marks against his apostolic claims, but on the contrary, vindicate them. It is enough that the servant be like the master. And this is exactly what, this is the number one thing we should be taking out of this, that in the first century context, if you're suffering, you're screwing up. Really? Absolutely. You're humiliated. If you're suffering. Yes. You're, you're, you're screwing things up. You were, you've lost face. You've lost value. You are, you've lost significance and you've lost meaning. So you've taken, in other words, you've taken a lower place in society or you're you, suffering physically. Um, I'm not sure I'm following you. That any form of, of, of suffering and persecution, being, being thrown in jail, being beaten for crimes that you may or may, that you did not commit, that um, any of these situations, well, in, in any sense, whether you committed them or not, but particularly being thrown in jail and persecuted for things you did not do, I mean, that's all the more difficult. But, but you're being, you, through what is happening to you, are being demoted in the eyes of society, and that is failure. Suffering, persecution, amount to demotion. Demotion is failure. You must be doing something wrong. You're failing. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. It's this pattern of suffering and vindication. In a first century context, Right? You're not going banging your head against a wall or putting yourself in a situation, in, a, in no-win situations, or stupidly antagonizing other people, or doing things that are going to bring about negative repercussions on you and saying, oh, look, I'm being like Jesus. No, you're not. In a first century context, you know, he's, again, and I put this back into what's written here. Paul is defending the boldness, the straightforward proclamation of the truth which characterizes his ministry. Yes, I do this. And the fact that I suffer persecution, you know, that I, as he would say, is persecuted, um, suffers, and yet Paul does not despair, he's not struck down, is the fact that he sees this as a reflection of what, of the pattern that Jesus was taking on in that society and what was happening to Jesus. And we as Christians can expect that. And I would embrace that entirely, entirely. But, of course, the question is, um, what does that mean for us now? You cannot see it the same way. Honor and shame is not part of our society, not in the Western world. We don't live like that in North America. So the suffering, the suffering could be physical. The suffering could be any number of things. But it's, it's clear and obvious demotion in society. That's what's happening in, in the biblical times, and that's what we're talking about, right? Because suffering that you face necessarily that is secret or, um, you know, it's this sort of emotional situation where you feel terrible about whatever, that type of situation I think would be addressed in a different way. You know, where we'd be told to to be of good good cheer, to be to be enheartened, to be encouraged, right? That's the type of situation when we're talking about suffering. When there's reference to suffering, I think I haven't I haven't looked at this um, 
in depth, but but my understanding from the things that I'm reading and I've read so far is that we're talking about something public, something that affects your public credibility and your level and status that everybody can see. And it doesn't mean, you know, it's not excluding necessarily. It puts a whole different face on this a little bit. Wow. I I think so. Well, particularly at the bottom of page 161, when Kyle's talking about ultimately the cross was a symbol of death, and Jesus invites people and followers to die to themselves. This is the last last two sentences. We die to our own desires, our pursuits, and our plans. We become followers of Jesus. That is the end of us. And I just think, no, I think you've totally misunderstood that. You've totally misunderstood what's, what's going on there. You've totally misunderstood how and why it is uh, that Paul does not despair in his sufferings, is not abandoned, etc. Yeah, and I think that's because he's glommed onto this He's glommed on to that one, the Luke nine twenty three, and he's mm-hmm. in this chapter. He's glommed on to the whole taking up your cross. So back on one sixty, it's taking up your cross and following Jesus can only. Or I'm sorry, taking up your cross and following Jesus can and will bring pain and suffering. You can't carry a cross without suffering. There's no one. There's no comfortable way to carry a cross. And then uh, I often talk to people who are convinced that some of some of the pain or suffering in their lives is an indication that they might might not be following Jesus. After all, if they are following Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't it follow that things in life are going to unfold smoothly? (laughs) I'm still quoting him. There is this junk theology floating around out there that points to difficulties as evidence that you must not be following Jesus. I think he's one for pointing out junk theology. (laughs) The biblical reality is that when people say yes to following Jesus, they are agreeing to carry a cross and that will be painful at times. And so, tagging on to the end of what you were talking about, when you go to the next page on 162, a cross, more than anything else, represented death. And so, he's just continuing to bang this whole drum of basically being a Christian, being a follower, equals death, equals suffering, equals pain, equals carrying your cross. And then this is the part that just sends me over the top. Back on 161, I feel like he he twists this a little bit and he gets it backwards. And he's got this little like call out on the side of the page. Am I really carry Am I really carrying a cross if there's no suffering and sacrifice? So there's probably some term for this. I mean, you can help me out, but I feel like he's building this argument kind of block by block. Mm-hmm. And the foundation of the argument just is fallacious. It stinks. Mm-hmm. So he's he's established that this one verse is to carry a cross. And so now we have to talk about carrying a cross. And then how do you know if you... And then, <laughs> so now it's how do you know if you're carrying a cross for reals? <laughs> <laughs> you know, am I really carrying a cross? And so then back up a little bit above that. Um, so he's quoted these... Th- three scriptures that I like to look at. Luke 6, 22, 2 Timothy 3, 12, Philippians 1, 29. Notice we only get one verse. There's no context or anything, but all we need is, of course, those one sentence from each verse to prove the point. Exactly. I highly disagree with. Um, So below those verses, it says, and here's the question that is keeping me awake these days. Am I really carrying a cross? And if there's no suffering and sacrifice, when is the last time that following Jesus cost you something? When is the last time it cost you a relationship? When is the last time following Jesus cost you a promotion? When is the last time it cost you a vacation? 
When is the last time you were mocked for your faith? Forget about having our lives threatened. When is the last time you went without a meal for the sake of the gospel? Can you really say you were carrying your cross if it hasn't cost you anything? Take a second and answer that question in your mind. Has it cost you anything? Is there no sacrifice involved? If you're not at least a little bit uncomfortable, then there is a good chance you aren't carrying a cross. So there's the checklist. Check the boxes. If you check enough boxes or don't check enough boxes, you're not carrying a cross and you are in direct violation of Luke 9.23, you are sinning. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I like that. You're in direct violation I mean, of that's Luke really that's really the, the, the case he's building here, isn't it? Yeah, you're not following so. this one sentence in the Bible. And you know yeah. what? I'm not opposed to maybe I'm not opposed to the to the notion that we should be following that one sentence in the Bible. Um, yeah. But I, something about this stinks. And so when I go back kind of dig, dig deeper and we're looking at Luke, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3:12 or Philippians 1:29, I I'd really like to look at those in depth and mm. and figure out What's going on here? Because I just feel like this message of, um, so so like Second Timothy three twelve, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I feel like what he's trying to say here is no persecution, no godly life. I think that's exactly what he's saying. But that to me that's like saying, to me that's like saying you know the the Bible talks about how you know if you live in the mountains at a higher elevation it will be cold. And it's like it's like the Bible is stating facts about what the results of certain things are. You will be persecuted if you follow me. You know, life may be difficult if you follow Christ. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But it's but again, it's like if you live in the mountains above ten thousand feet, it's going to be cold at night. <laughs> check check. So does that mean that you know if it's not cold at night, you're living in the wrong place? Like. I mean, You're not really in the mountains. Yeah, yeah uh, my analogy isn't very strong, but I just something's just something's mixed up or wrong here. <laughs> Help me out. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, you, you know, to the other thing that we've got to pay attention to is uh, the, the idea of the cross. I mean, I, again, I would come back and say a little bit more about Jesus on the cross. This idea from the Hebrew scriptures that. Um, when you die on a tree, if you're hung or if you, in this case, crucified, I don't think crucifixion was what they had in mind. I think they had in mind hanging. Um, that's an indication that you're cursed by God. And one of the things that uh, you know Paul is very strong on, and if you, you look through the, the Luke and Acts, you'll see at a number of, of, of uh, points this idea that, you know, um, I can actually go to the end of Luke and... Read it. Um, yeah, just the close of Luke, Luke 24, verse 46. And this is the risen Christ who's talking to the disciples later. Thus it is written, the Messiah is to suffer is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And, and these two things are super important. They're super important in the sense of identifying, and that's why he's using the word Messiah here, that, that these are identifying marks. Why did the Messiah have to suffer? Because Israel had not fulfilled the covenant. There was no way for Israel to fulfill the covenant. We were in a breach of covenant situation, which is a huge problem because the covenant, the fulfillment of that covenant is the way by which 
we go back all the way to Genesis in the original this is the fascinating part. The covenant is not does not come first. The promise precedes the covenant. God makes a deal before God even gets into the deal. God says, you know, come and and come into this land and and um, I will make your offspring numerous and will bless the whole earth through you. And then later there's a deal. You do this and I'll do this. But that blessing still has to come. In other words, God has committed to something that God needs to make good on. And it's not very good bargaining. You don't make a promise before you make the deal. You determine whether you're going to make the promise on the basis of whether the deal is kept. That is not what God did. If you look at the, se the sequence of events, it is very different. It is God approaching Abraham. Abraham coming leaving Ur and coming and God saying, I will do this for you. And then later on, we have these covenant moments, right, with Abraham and uh, later through Moses. But the Messiah, in being the Messiah, needed to bring about the keeping of the covenant and needed to carry both, both to do what needed to be done on the positive end and to receive what needed to be received on the negative end. So this idea of Christ's suffering and the crucifixion, the crucifixion was not just something that was um, a shaming thing uh, in, the, in antiquity, but in the ancient Near East, uh, in the Jewish perspective, to die that way is to be cursed by God. Christ's death, in other words, fulfills the idea and fulfills the reality that Israel is under curse. Israel is under curse for having broken the covenant. They failed to do what they said that they would do. And somehow God's still on the hook for this, right? Because God made a promise to, to, to Abraham, through, well, to Abraham and through Abraham, to the whole world, that God would do X. And God can't do X because the covenant was not kept. And so within this context of suffering, we have to understand that Jesus is... There's a suffering and vindication, and we're kind of obliterating this notion that the first century idea of honor and shame is the way to understand the world. No, 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 no. Jesus said, you, you don't understand it that way. You understand it my way. My way is the way to see things. Who is your mother? Who are your brothers and sisters? These are who these people are. This is how you view it. And if you are suffering, if you are dealing with ostracism and public shame for the basis of my name, count that as joy count that as good. That is not something to indicate a failure. That is indication that you are following a pattern and you indeed will be vindicated in the end. And in terms of Christ and being cursed and the suffering, that again is part and parcel of a much larger picture of a necessity to fulfill the covenant for what? For the blessing of the whole world. For that original promise that God made to Abraham that God will make good on. And then you got these other ones in, um, you see, I would find, just in terms of what you said about, say, the three verses on 161, Luke 6, 22, 2 Timothy 3, 12, Philippians 1, 29. What I don't see um, is, say, the reference in Matthew, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And what we're not seeing 
is again, what I'm trying to draw out in coming back to Jesus is there's a particular specificity. There's a specificity that we cannot broadly apply. So in the broad, in the broad application here, I feel like is to pick up your cross. Maybe, maybe we should start there. Like, what exactly does that mean to pick up your cross? Because that's been, I mean, people, I feel like that's a really broad brush that gets used a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I think what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean dying on a cross because you need to. It doesn't mean, um, in our current context, being shamed because you need to. Shame functions in a different way in our society. And embracing shame and, and, and uh, repudiating honor is not going to work the same way in our society. That is not the way to go. Right. And so when he look, for example, when he's talking on page 161, when is the last time it cost you a vacation? When is the last time you were mocked for your faith? I, I don't know. I was in the store in a, uh, um, in a hardware store and I just made my purchase and the woman behind me is making her purchase and I'm just gathering up my stuff and she slides this thing across and I just kind of caught something. It's like, it wasn't like the way you hand cash, you hand cash or you show your credit card and then you stick it in the thing, right? Or maybe you give it to them and they swipe it. But she kind of slid it across like this, I don't know, like it was a secret message or a note. And it caught my eye. And I was just like, I don't believe this. This woman is giving this salesperson a track while she's buying something. Like, that's so icky. Like, what are you doing? You're, you've got somebody in a forced, they're, they're bound by their job to deal with you. That's just, it was so terrible. And I thought, you know, is, is this woman going to be mocked for doing this later? Yes, she probably will be. Is that, is that some sort of a, does that indicate badge of honor. Being, a badge of honor? Exactly. That you're being, you know, persecuted. No, it's not. You're, you're acting in a foolish way and you're also really dismissing and disdaining that person. So back to the, so back to carrying th- this directive to pick up your cross and follow me daily. And I mean, again, I feel like he's zeroed in on you got to be carrying a cross. And no, of course, it's not a literal cross because we don't do that today. But I mean, I've, I really feel like what he's saying is you got to find, you know, you don't necessarily have to find a cross, but well, you can decide, you can determine if you're carrying a cross, you know, by determining how box, how many boxes you were able to check off in his little list. Well, you see, he's he's equating the cross again with sacrifice as a cro- as opposed to. I mean, there's many ways of seeing this. So, right, I was talking about the cross as being like uh, a necessary fulfillment of who Jesus is as Messiah, and as followers of Messiah carrying a cross. Uh, I mean, what was essential to to what Jesus did? I think love and obedience. Jesus loved us enormously. That's why. How. Did, did Jesus fulfill the cross? Through obedience. So the motivation is love, and the, the, the vehicle is obedience. That's carrying the cross. We've, we've stuck it in a context that it does not necessarily imply. Will there be issues? Will, you know, will we butt up against things? In other words, you, you don't need to look very far where, where Paul is talking about, you know, we, we struggle against principalities. There are forces external to us. If you believe in, um, in the divine, the angelic order, um, and, and I do, 
um, that there there is an antagonist, an adversary, you know, that that, that is variously called Satan, Lucifer, etc. That is, uh, you know, uh, a created being of of uh, remarkable resources and intellect that stands opposed to us. Will we be? Will there be uh, conflict? Yes, there will be. But is taking up your cross an indication that you must embrace some sort of physical, mental, emotional suffering as absolutely necessary to being part of the gospel as a as a marker? No, I don't think that's the wrong marker to choose. You got it wrong. The right markers to choose are put in the text as the primary priorities for Christians. What must you do? Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are primary. And out of love, what happens? What is, it, what is the, the main indicator of uh, one who is part of the New Testament, New Testamental or New Covenantal community? The law is written upon the heart. I do what I do, not out of obligation, but out of desire. Because I love someone, I act in a certain way. I act in accord with that person and not in, 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 in discord to that. And part of the idea of suffering that I think is not the idea of, you know, whips and um, chains and crosses is the idea that sometimes my love for God gets in the way of my love for other things. And sometimes I've got to make a choice and sometimes those choices suck. I don't like making those choices. They're very difficult. But I, I've got to be guided by that love above all, all other, other loves. Guided by obedience to and through that desire above obedience to and through all other desires. That's what it is, I think, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Well, I, I, I'm looking at this passage as you're reading Luke 9.23. And it, it, what also strikes me is the notion of denial. In, in making that choice, is that, would you say that's representative of denying yourself? Well, but again, right? Or am I trying to follow the verse too carefully? <laughs> no, I think it's good. But but again, this is a first century context. So what are you doing? Like, what's 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 getting denied here? Like, let me, let me read to you from, let's see if I can find this. Uh... Well, while you're looking for it. So here's what Luke 9.23 says, just... NASB. And he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. But again, you know, what are these things here? <clears throat> I think the other, other helpful way, I'll, I'll put that book down and just refer within the text. So Luke, um, 9.23 is paralleled in Matthew and in Mark in the two other synoptic gospels and they give us a little bit more of a clue in those ones so Luke and pardon me Matthew 16.24 is the other reference yeah and, and these are you see we've got to put these things into context Matthew 16 look what's happening there uh, verse 22, right? Um, man, this is just so clear, and I don't understand why. I don't understand why we don't do this. Um, Matthew 16, from 21 to the end, which is 28. And right in the middle there, in verse 24, it's about taking up your cross. In verse 21, 
From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and then on the third day be raised. Now that's a formula that, that says, I am conforming with who the Messiah is supposed to be. I will conform with these things. That is who I am. That is the goal. Next verse, verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting my mind not on divine things, but on human things. And this again is coming back to this desire um, and understanding that the people had that Jesus was a prophet who would bring political, social, economic emancipation. Jesus will bring those things and more. Those, but those things are not the primary things. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God as Messiah, keeping the covenant, opening the way through for the blessings for the entire earth that were promised to Abraham. And Peter is getting in the way of that. Forget it. And then Jesus says in his next statement, then he said to the disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it, etc. So we see this in the context. This is particularly in the context of Peter saying, here's how it's supposed to be. And Jesus saying, no, here's how it's supposed to be. It's not about the political. It's about the kingdom of God. I am not a prophet. I am the Messiah. I am more than you understand. Or you're making me out to be less than you may understand me when you put me in that role. I am much, that's not my role. And so, again, if we look in Mark 8, 34, we've got the same situation. Exactly the same thing. Right? Mark 8, 31. That's where we'll begin. Then he began, Jesus began, to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at the, his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting my mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If you want to become my followers, if anyone be called my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For again, you know, it's saving your life and losing it, etc., for the sake of the gospel. So, in this, in this um, section here, in Luke, um, we're skipping over the part about Peter. He's put it in a different way to kind of bring out some different, uh, to emphasize different things. But he still has the part about suffering. So, again, in Luke 21, go a couple verses up, he sternly, he, Jesus, sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone. Um, this is because Peter has, in this case, he's identified. He said, you are the Messiah. So, let's go back and I'll make this clear. Verse 20, um, he said to, the, to them, to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and killed, and on the third day rise again. And then he said to them all, If anyone to become my followers, let them take up their cross and follow me. So again, this is in the context of understanding what it is, what the kingdom of God is about, who Jesus is about, and taking up that cross means you are taking up the ultimate goal uh, of embracing the kingdom of God, of not seeking any partial fulfillments or second-rate views on what God is doing, 
That's part of what's going on here. Each one of these times, right? This is going to happen. I'm going to, I've got to suffer and die and I will be you know, raised again. And again, he's talking to people who have an inclination to see Jesus as a prophet. You know, Peter obviously makes a, a very strong claim in Luke, but he doesn't make that claim in the other two, right? They've already talked about, you know, wanting Jesus to free them from the Roman rule and uh, create political, social, economic change. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't want it. I'm, I'm not having any of that. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to reign as a person or a prophet or a king. I'm here to carry out my father's requests, my father's wishes, and to bring about the kingdom of God, to change the entire order of things. And in this context, your dedication to this new order of things is paramount. That is where you, you, have to, you have to be and you have to stand. And it's, it's, it's a dedication that resembles what Jesus is doing. It's an ultimate dedication. And why? What, what's going on? What's, what's uh, underwriting that dedication? Love and obedience. Love and an understanding, obedience and understanding of the truth and of the situation as it really is, and acting out of that love in accord with that truth. That's how I see this. So, <laughs> so I'm still not totally clear. What? So, in the context then of this time, what does carrying a cross mean? What What do you think? What would the audience hearing the words about carrying a cross? What would their takeaway be in their cultural context? A complete obliteration of their standing. Complete shame. Complete, you know, it would be like, what are you talking about taking up a cross? You know, we know what the cross means. The cross means you're going you're gonna to get killed. Taking up the cross means you're walking on your way to death. But you're walking on the way to basically everything you stood for sucks and you're going to die too. Everything you've thought you've accomplished has now been taken from you. And it's like, you know, your name's been removed from the list of uh, from the history books, uh, your 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 family is uh, has been ashamed or been, has been shamed uh, on your account, and uh, you're going to be dead. That's it. And uh, you know that's just an incredibly stark, stark message, right? Um, well, and, and, uh, but then, <laughs> but it's but, all. But isn't that what Kyle would be applauding you right now? He would say, "Yeah, that's what my whole book is about." No, but you got to do that if you want to be a follower. He's totally taken it out of the context because in each one of these three cases, in each one, you know, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great sufferings at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. That formula is in each one of these things. That formula precedes each indication that we must take up the cross. That is the context for taking up the cross, that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus, in being the Messiah, is bringing about the kingdom of God. And that we know we owe no higher allegiance than to the kingdom of God. That we are called as beloved. That we are embraced as children and servants. Within and into that kingdom. And put in the context here, I mean, if I was to take this and apply this to me today, I would say, you know, Greg, everything that you are counting on, everything that you are banking on, Every bit of success that you have had, 
will be as nothing relative to the kingdom of God. That is what it is to carry the cross. It is to realize that just as it was in the first century context where a cross is uh, shame, your name, your family's name, everything is, is, is brought completely low. And then you are, everything you've got is taken from you. You're, you're killed. So it's more of a realization of your standing versus something you do? Well, I think it's a realization of, of what matters. What matters and what it means to be in relationship with God in, in, in bringing about to be a... Yeah, okay. No, I see where you're going, and I think the difficulty that I'm having, and maybe many others, is that, you know, quote, the passage seems so clear. It says to pick up your cross and do it daily. But, so it, it's it's hard to say, well, that's just, you know, you just need to have a realization of how bad your standing is, and that's really what it means. In other words, it's it, it seems I, too I, easy. It's too, uh, it's not painful enough. I mean, we're supposed to, uh, like... <laughs> Well, <laughs> Again, I'm trying to undo uh, many years of uh, teaching, and it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to get it out of my head. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I mean, this is a pretty stark message, right? Taking up your cross, but but we cannot see this in the same light as the people in the first century saw it, because the implication of 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 sh- we experience shame. Like, I experience shame in my life, but it's not the same way. It is not the same way. Jesus is saying, you need to totally refigure and rethink your entire existence and the, and the values and meaning of even your whole life on the basis of the fact that I am the Messiah. So in the context that I am the Messiah, think of your life in that way. Everything is different to the point that you must take up a cross and follow me daily. That you must embrace shame, which is the lowest, is the most, is the thing that we, (laughs) there's two things in antiquity you, you avoid the most. One is shame. That's the second worst. The second is death. Jesus is saying, I am totally reversing the order. The things that you count as of greatest worth, I will show you relative to the kingdom of God. Are, are is nothing. It doesn't mean that your life doesn't mean anything. It means that holding on to your life as something sacred in and of itself, taken out of the context of relationship with, with Jesus, who is the Messiah, is a fundamental, is the most fundamental misunderstanding of human existence possible. And that's huge. This is a huge message. It's hugely powerful, but it does not necessarily concern shame for us today because we shame does not turn in the same way or this idea that you know you you have to be whipped and scorched i mean that it may come down to that but for most of us it doesn't martyrdom does not look like uh death martyrdom may well look like other things you know now now maybe people would say i'm stretching the definition of martyrdom maybe martyrdom can only imply death Okay, then I, I guess I'll need to come up with another word if that's the case. But um, I think we we just fail miserably to understand this when we strip it out of the context. The, the, the fact that Jesus is saying, is giving us this formula, 
that says, I am the Messiah, and I am going to die and suffer. And this suffering happens to be on a cross. So remember in the story, I don't think, I haven't looked at this, but I'm pretty sure we're very early in the books. We're, verse, we're chapter 16 in Matthew, chapter 8 in Mark, and chapter 9 in Luke. Actually, we're kind of middle of Matthew, middle of Mark, and about 40% through Luke. I don't think he's talking about dying on a cross per se. So there's foreshadowing in this too. Take up your cross. Oh, I would never do that. And when then we see that Jesus dies on a cross. This is how he dies. This is his death. He's not asking us to do something that's so extraordinarily crazy. Uh, he's in fact embracing that for himself. And that's the way it goes for him. You know, I don't know if it could have been another way, but um, if we take it out of the context that Jesus is Messiah, that the kingdom of God is being announced, and that Jesus is the one who is bringing that about, and that relative to that, relative to I am the person doing this, and I am telling you this about taking up your cross, and later you will see that I do this myself. That, you know, in that sense, I totally agree with Kyle. Being a follower is about taking up the cross daily. I totally disagree with him about what it means. You know, um... So what would you say it means today? I think you said this a little earlier, and I'm still... I think I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. So play play it back, I guess, in terms of what what does this passage mean to us today? Like, what as a yeah, as a reader today reading this section, what what's what's the message? Well, the message might be, um, you know, the two the two Im- implicit in this notion of a cross is one. You've lost everything significant in this life, and your life is over. And it's putting that, it's juxtaposing that, contrasting that with the value and significance of the kingdom of God. The message that I would have to take away from this for me um, is, what is it in my life that matters? And how, how are these important things... Um, and these societal norms, etc. Um, how do I situate them relative to the kingdom of God? How do I perceive the value of, in our society, material goods is pretty high, right? Um, social standing is pretty high. Um, popularity. Popularity. How do I situate these things relative to the kingdom of God? And, and, and the message I should be taking away from this verse is these things are of no, no, are essentially of no significance. The things you base your life on are of no significance relative to the kingdom of God. Everything must be reworked. Everything must be reseen in light of that light. And will that mean hardships? Yes, it will mean hardships. So I think hardships are much better than suffering. Are you putting yourself out? Yeah, you're going to have to put yourself out. Are you going to have to make hard choices? Are you going to have to give up some things to gain the, to gain other things? Absolutely. And are you going to sometimes question that? Are you going to sometimes say, hey, this is not worth it? Absolutely. And, you know. But I like what you're saying in the sense that the suffering comes from the hard choices, Mm-hmm. Because the message in this 
book and other places is we've been called to suffer. So go find somewhere to suffer. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I do. And that's really, that's really just backwards. Yeah. I think suffering in and of itself is not, is not what's, what's called for here. Um, so I'm just going to write that down. Called to suffer versus, uh, hardships that come from hard choices or even from choices that don't seem so hard. And I think that's what it's about. Um, because there's no way to take this this verse out of the the really really kind of like that that's a huge nutshell formulation there, this whole idea, Jesus must suffer and die and in the third day be raised. I mean this is basically this is a this is an indication. And I think this is why in Luke, why 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 Luke has changed the order, right? Luke has done it differently than Mark and Matthew. So in Luke, you have, uh, you know. Jesus asked the crowds, who do, I, who do you say that I am? And the crowds answer variously. And then Peter says, um, the Messiah of God. And then Jesus says, essentially, you know, don't tell anybody. And yeah, you're right. And he makes the announcement. Here's what it is to be the Messiah of God. I will suffer. I will be raised. And then out of that, we take up our cross and follow God. We essentially embrace the way of Christ. In, in what? What does it mean to embrace the way of Christ? Well, on the one hand, it's going to mean loving God with all your heart and all your being and loving your neighbor as yourself and having the law written upon your heart. That is the positive side, of it, if you like. The negative side is you're going to have to make hard choices, bearing in mind that the kingdom of God, the value in the kingdom of God and in, in, uh, in seeking the kingdom of God and embracing the projects of God for the furtherance of the kingdom of God outweigh the value of everything you can imagine and even your life. Yeah, and what's so funny about this, the message is so subtle. It's it, like in some ways you're ending up in the same place Kyle does, only he gets there somewhere a different way. I mean, on 161, Jesus invites his followers to die to themselves. We but, die but, to our own desires, our pursuits, our plans. When we become totally followers it, of... <laughs> He totally missed it because he's missed out the first part. No, no, no. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with. You. I just, I guess what I just think is that it's. I don't know. I guess I'm just having this. Epi- I don't know. It's epiphany, but just a sense of like that. The nuance is so subtle here that that we do die to ourselves, but the way that it's set out here in his book is the whole goal is to die, and what I think you and I are saying is dying is a byproduct of loving your neighbor of making these other choices, but it's not, it's not the sole pursuit. I would, I would say that dying is not the point. Living is the point. Living and living rightly is the point that the whole dying that's, and that's why, I mean, there's so much involved in what it is to love God with all your being. Well, and he when he says die to die to the die to ourselves, he's often talking about becoming a zero and becoming nothing. So maybe that's where he's going with that. Yeah, and I'm not going there at all. I think right. you become you become fantastic. I mean, I, I like who I am. I, I I appreciate who I am in being. I, I love the self that I'm becoming in being loved by God and in loving God in return. And I could look for a lot of things in life. I could look for status, for money, for power. 
for acceptance, for popularity, whatever. Um, but I, I don't think, from my experience, those things do not bring this type of fulfillment and satisfaction that loving yourself and, and believing that what you're doing is, is valuable and that you are feeling deeply valued and loved. These things are what counts in life, and, and they are nowhere more rich, nowhere more real than being in a love relationship with God. In that context, there is no sense of dying to myself. There is only a sense of, I guess, daily reminding myself that the things, and this is where the, that cross thing is fantastic, daily reminding myself that the messages that my culture is giving me, where they conflict with the messages of the kingdom of God, are wrong. They are death. They don't work. It's not about losing yourself. It's about finding yourself. Ooh, it's, it's, that's pretty new age. It's the paradox <laughs> of... Well, the, the, there is no kind of, you know, you're giving up yourself and becoming something different. And this is, this is why part of my interest in my uh, grad work was looking at the notion of personal story. You do not give up your story when you come to God. There is an interweaving, this fantastic interweaving of the biblical story and biblical history with my personal story and my personal history. And it's too complicated to go into now, but, but this idea that we become zero or what was his word at the end of page 161? He had that last final sentence. And we become followers of Jesus. That is the end of us. No, that's not it at all. It's the beginning. Well, it, it's a realization of, of who I can be and that I love that possibility far more than I love my own versions of my own best most self. That my ideas are lame in comparison with God's ideas for me. You know, if you go, if you say, this is how I want my life to be, this is what my career... I would like my career to be, and you, you go to a, a life coach or a specialist, and they say, well, you know, have you thought about this, or have you thought about that? And this person puts something together for you and structures something that you're like, wow, this is so much better than what I had initially thought, thought of myself. Why wouldn't you embrace that? I mean, if you really care for yourself and you want the best for yourself, why wouldn't you take the best possible framing of something and go with it and say, this is what I'm going to pursue? That is exactly what God's offering us. God's saying, I know you better, and I love you deeper than you know and love yourself. Let me be your guide in this. Let me sketch that for you. Go with my sketch. It'll work out better for you. You'll have the things you want and more. So this idea of losing is always within a context of gaining more. Yeah, and I think the notion is that I like the 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 idea of a sketch and i think the the notion though is that we we bring a blank slate to god and he does everything but what i'm hearing you saying is no we bring ourselves and who we are mm -hmm. and god interweaves that and so i think that bringing that blank slate that blank piece of paper is this whole notion of emptying yourself and becoming absolutely nothing which we don't agree with that is perfect you just hit on it because that's that's the idea like you've got something on the page and god says 
here's my big eraser. Let me erase that for you. And let me tell you, let me give you, give you, like, this is what you're supposed to be. You know, and it's so generic, right? I mean, we're not reading, you're not reading John's personal story. And I'm not reading Greg's personal story when I pick up a Bible. But God loves me. God loves all the uniqueness and wonderful aspects of me and you. Why wouldn't God want that uniqueness to be, to flourish in light of the best, most possibilities we can have for ourselves, which are God's possibilities for us? That's exactly what God wants. God wants you to be you, not a cookie cutter copy of somebody else or some other thing or some generic notion of what it is to be a follower of God. God knows you. God loves you. God wants you to be you. God wants you to be in right relationship with God and then use all of your God-given creativity and responsibility and talent and intellect to work out what it is to be a follower of God. You know, and I think that's what we should understand. This notion of working out your salvation with fear and trembling means it means working out the um, there's there's huge creativity and responsibility involved in that, and it doesn't mean getting rid of yourself. That's the 20th century notion that needs to be struck from the books. Wow, lots to think about there. <laughs> For me, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure I wasn't too clear this time. I, I kind of kept turning over the same points and not being able to summarize them too well, but yeah, it was good. I really appreciated you asking about, you know, what is the, what, what is taking a cross look like for, for and you? I'm still, for me? Yeah. And I'm still, yeah, I don't know that I, that's my, that's the work I have to do myself is, this, you know, so many years of this is what this verse means. Are you doing it? Are you doing it enough? Um, versus this new way of looking at it and yeah don't you think that that if i mean i think the gospel writers have got it right so so i i do believe in uh uh, that god inspired the writing and uh, god that what we're reading here is is accurate particularly you know when people say to you know when people at one point said to jesus what's the greatest commandment i believe the gospel writers got it correct the greatest commandment is not to take up your cross and follow me daily. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. And the next is to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything we read uh, in the New Testament must be contextualized and understood within that hierarchy of priority. And if there's a conflict there, then the conflict is not with the, with the priority of number one and number two. Taking up your cross does not supersede loving God. Taking up your cross is part of loving God and loving yourself, which is not self-destruction, self-denial, self-abasement, etc. You know, so this is where, again, with Kyle, ultimately I would finish and say, you not only have to kind of include verses like uh, all you who are heavily burdened and, you know, etc. Come to me, my, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You not only have to include that, and, and explain how that fits in, because it does, it must, it's part of scripture, you can't kind of ignore it. But you have to contextualize your perspective within the greater priority of loving God and loving yourself and loving others. And if you can't make it work, 
you've got a problem with your interpretation of whatever you're working on because you know that the, there's no question of what the highest priorities are. And I think that's a really that should be a really um, reassuring thing. Yeah, no, I can see. Yeah, if you're looking at it through that filter, then I get more and more your whole contention of okay, we're on page 160 or so. Where's the discussion of love? Yeah, and how's the page 160 discussion, how is it already being contextualized by the whole thing about love? And you and I have been remarking that that's been... Absent. Absent or really hard to find through the whole thing. And that that should make us... That should make... For me, as a Christian, as a reader, I would become very worried and suspicious that this book is really got the proper orientation. I'm sure he's talking about biblical notions, but have they been taken out of context and misaligned? I'd be worried about that. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 26. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.